0: This is Radio 316. Welcome, radio friends and family. Welcome to our new affiliate stations, and welcome to those joining us for the first time. In today's broadcast, we're going to answer this question. Is cremation biblical? In 1960, only 4% of Americans were cremated upon their passing. Now, for the first time in American history, a majority of Americans, 50.2%, have opted for cremation rather than traditional burial. So the question for us remains, is cremation biblical? And if your answer is yes, then can you prove that from scripture? And if your answer is no, then what makes traditional burial any different given that we all turn to dust eventually? And today's broadcast, will evaluate both views. This is Radio 316. Chapter 1 The Conflict As cremation has grown in popularity and acceptance, there are many in the Christian community who have seen it as a good, affordable, and appropriate way to handle the remains of our loved ones. For some, it's pursued without a second thought because the Bible repeatedly tells us From dust we come, and to dust we shall go. In this view, cremation just expedites our body's eventual decay and limits the significant expenses we would otherwise face on the front end. With that said, other believers reject cremation altogether, pointing out that traditional burial is the norm throughout the biblical record. Beyond this, there's a third group that sees this whole debate as irrelevant. To them, what we do with one's body after death is just a practical matter, not a theological one. They would say that God just isn't that concerned with what becomes of our fallen bodies after death. Now, Before we examine these three positions, let me make something clear. This is not an issue that anyone's salvation rests upon. Good Christians can, and often do, disagree on what we call secondary matters. And this is a secondary matter. This is not a topic on which anyone's salvation rests. Neither burial or cremation, or being eaten by sharks, or blown out of an airlock, or any other outcome or demise can ever separate us from God or prohibit our future resurrection. And because of that, if you've ever had an undue sense of fear or guilt regarding today's topic, then I want you to be encouraged as we continue. With that said, the fact remains that there is a one-to-one correlation between people and death, and that means that the issue of what to do with our bodies upon our demise affects all of us, at least at some point. And so, do you think that God cares how we address it? Do you think God has any preference in this regard? My own sense is that He does. Theologically, we know that the human body is made in His image. It's the temple of His Spirit. He is the one who formed us in the womb, and our physical bodies have a value that He desires ultimately to resurrect them, and not just to recreate them. And so, to say that what happens to the body after death is just a practical consideration and not theological, as if God doesn't have an opinion on it, is probably not accurate. So then, what is God's view, to the degree that we can identify it in Scripture? Is cremation a God-approved alternative, or is traditional burial a necessity for believers, irrespective of how expensive it may be for some to pursue? In a nutshell, those are the questions, those are the views that shape this conflict. Let's see what Scripture has to say about them now. Chapter 2, The Biblical Witness You know, there once was a man who lived to be 120 years old, and right before this man died, he went up a mountain and met with God, and moments later, he passed into glory. Now, since this man was all alone when he died, what became of his body? Well, Deuteronomy 24 identifies this man as Moses and says that after Moses died, God himself took the body and buried it at an unknown, undisclosed location. Now, I'm going to return to this particular event shortly to see if there's anything that we can learn from it that's applicable to today's study. But before I do, let me mention a couple of other examples of times when God's people passed away in Scripture to see if there's any common themes for how their bodies were dealt with. In the verses we'll review, we'll see references to both burial and cremation. Let's start with the verses that refer to burial. Way back in the book of Genesis, there was a man named Abraham. As you probably recall, Abraham had a wife named Sarah. Well, in Genesis 23, when both were well advanced in years, we read that Sarah died. And in Genesis 23, we also read about what Abraham did next. Specifically, Genesis 23 says this, Then Abraham stood up from before his dead and spoke to the sons of Heth, saying, I am a foreigner and a visitor among you. Give me property for a burial place among you, that I may bury my dead out of my sight. Alright, following Sarah's death, Abraham had a choice to make regarding her physical remains. In other words, Abraham's wife had passed, and Abraham needed to deal with the disposition of her body. And Genesis 23, says that Abraham approached this guy, he was called Ephron the Hittite, about buying a piece of land to bury her in. Now, whatever else we can take away from this text, we can take away this. The disposition of his wife's remains was not irrelevant or incidental to Abraham. He knew that she was dead. He knew that she was not coming back. And he knew that her body would ultimately turn to dust. And yet, he still made special arrangements for her remains. Now, is the burial of Sarah just descriptive to us, something we read about, or is it prescriptive for us, an action that we're supposed to replicate? In other words, does this passage describe the choices of just one man or prescribe a course of action for the rest of us to follow? Now, before we can answer that, we need to consider if there's any other references to burial in Scripture. Well, the short answer is that there's a lot of references, more than we have time to explore. Sarah, Abraham, Jacob, Samuel, Hezekiah, King David, even Christ himself. The list goes on. In those cases and more, we can make these two observations. Number one, upon death, the remains of God's saints were routinely honored. And number two, upon death, the remains of God's beloved were routinely buried. On over 200 occasions in scripture, some form of traditional burial is mentioned as the standard disposition of those who had passed. Now, before we jump to any conclusions from those occurrences, we need to consider the examples and circumstances of cremation that we do see in Scripture. As you might expect, there are somewhat fewer examples of cremation than burial. There's just two or three that are frequently cited compared to the 200 plus for burial. But one of those occurrences involved a king, a man named King Saul. Let's consider his cremation now. In 1 Samuel 31, we read of the horrific death of Saul at the hands of his enemies, after which his body was burned along with his sons. Specifically, we read this, When the inhabitants of Jabesh Gilead heard what the Philistines had done to Saul, all the valiant men arose and went all night and took the body of Saul and the bodies of his sons from the wall at Bethshan, and they took them to Jabesh and burned them there. Then they took their bones and buried them under the tamarisk tree in Jabesh and fasted for seven days. All right, so the burning of Saul's bones is the first example of cremation that we find in scripture. Now, this is not a trivial example. This guy was the king of Israel, the sort of guy that one should be able to draw precedence from. With that said, what else do we know about the circumstances involving his death and the cremation of his body? Well, the first thing we notice is that Saul and his sons were initially killed and their bodies broken and beaten and abused by the Philistines following Saul's disobedience to God. Whatever his body looked like at that time, it was in bad shape. Shortly thereafter, we see that Saul's allies took their corpses to Jabesh and burned them there. Now, some advocates of cremation will say that irrespective of how he died, Saul's cremation in 1 Samuel sets a pattern or a precedent for later use. In other words, because this was a king of Israel whose remains were cremated, this makes the action itself legitimate for others to pursue. With that said, it may be helpful to remember the context here. Given the actions of the Philistines, it's likely that Saul's body was significantly marred and abused at the time that it was retrieved. And if that's the case, then there was no possibility of applying traditional Hebrew customs at that point. Given the condition of his body, it's possible that cremation seemed like the only way to eliminate the signs of violence on his corpse. Whatever the case, we should also note that those cremains or the ashes of Saul and his sons were not just cast into the air or to the river or what have you. They were still buried. All right, let's move on to the second primary example of cremation that we find in Scripture, which involved a man named Achan. After the conquest of Jericho in Joshua 7, there was a man named Achan who committed a particular sin, and he was stoned to death as a result. But instead of burying Achan at that point, Scripture says that his body was burned, and his ashes were then buried under a pile of rocks. Specifically Joshua seven fifteen says this regarding Achan and anyone else who was to follow his example. Whoever is caught with the devoted things shall be destroyed by fire, along with all that belongs to him. Evidently, death was an insufficient punishment by itself, but burning the lawbreaker's body was added as a punitive deterrent to all those who might replicate his crimes. Now, in its entry on the topic of cremation, the Holman Bible Dictionary notes that burning one's body had punitive connotations throughout Scripture. Specifically, Holman said this, In ancient Israel, death by burning was reserved as a punishment for the worst of criminals. You see this in Genesis 38, Joshua 7, Leviticus 20. Both it and cremation were stigmatized as abhorrent by the Israelites. Because burning bones was considered to be the ultimate desecration of the dead, it was subject to punishment by God. Desecrating bodies by burning them made God angry. If you look at Amos, the book of Amos, chapter two, verse one, the people of Moab burned the bones of a rival king, the king of a place called Edom. And God said this in response. He said, for three transgressions and for four, I will not turn away its punishment because he burned the bones of the king of Edom to lime." All right, let's pause there for a moment. If the question is, is cremation biblical, the answer to that is yes, in a sense. We do find it in the Bible. But in those occurrences, the context is generally negative or punitive. Furthermore, even in those circumstances where cremation was utilized, the cremains were then buried. There's no precedent for the spreading of ashes to the winds or to the waters, as has become popular in our day. Now, before we move on to our next segment, let's briefly consider the burial practices of the early church age and of the church fathers. If you study the age of the church, you'll see that cremation has, until very recently, been viewed as a negative by both Protestant and Catholic bodies alike. In fact, on those occasions when burning of the physical body has occurred, it's typically been reserved for one's religious enemies, not for one's loved ones. You don't have to think back any further than Nero. Nero lighting Christians on fire in his gardens. Or Polycarp, who was burned at the stake. Or Jan Hus, who was burned many centuries later. In fact, when uh, John Whitcliffe died, he left such a strong impression in his wake that 43 years later, his enemies dug up his bones and guess what? They burned them. Throughout church history, just as we see in scripture, the burning of one's remains has had a generally negative and punitive connotation. In fact, to find any civilization that supported cremation, you'd have to turn to the Gnostics or the Romans or the Babylonians. However, these peoples and their societies were routinely antagonistic toward the God of Israel, and their practices should probably not inform our thinking. All right, one last theological thought before we move on. You know, the greatest outpouring of God's judgment on his own people occurred in the years 586 BC and 70 AD, and they involved the burning of the temple in Jerusalem, the burning of the temple down to ash. In other words, the burning of temples has a negative connotation in redemptive history. With that in mind, where is God's temple now? Corinthians 3 answers that question for us. It says this, it says, do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the spirit of God dwells in you? If anyone defiles the temple of God, God will destroy him. For the temple of God is holy, which temple you are. Now to be clear, Once your spirit has departed your body upon death, this verse does not apply in the same way that it previously did. Nevertheless, it seems like Christians should be very thoughtful and very prayerful before committing something to the flame that had previously served as God's temple. Chapter 3 Modern Views. All right, for time's sake, let's fast forward to the present. As we said at the outset of today's broadcast, cremation has gone from the minority view in our country to the majority almost overnight. In 1960, not that long ago, only 4% of Americans were cremated. Now, for the first time in American history, a majority of Americans, at 50.2%, have chosen cremation rather than traditional burial after their death. The National Funeral Directors Association expects this trend, the shift from burial towards cremation, to continue over the next 20 years, with a projected rate of cremation reaching 78.8% of all deaths by the year 2035. Let's stop for a minute and ask the question, why? Why in the world has cremation gotten so popular so fast? Even in church circles, this is becoming the dominant trend. But what is that dominance based upon? Is the Christian embrace of cremation based on some renewed study of Scripture? Has theological study shaped our collective views on this matter? Well, to be kind, I would say probably not. As we've already seen in our time today, to the degree that the Bible speaks on these matters, it would seem to advocate against cremation rather than for it. But if that's the case, then why have so many Christians embraced it or accepted it? Well, in a word, I would say that the answer is pragmatism. You see, here's the thing that we have to remember about funerals, burials, and the like. They are expensive. To purchase a gravesite, or to buy a coffin, or to embalm a body, to hold a service, these things add up. According to the National Funeral Directors Association, which sounds like a really fun bunch, the average cost of a funeral is over $11,000. Conversely, cremation can nearly cut those costs in half. Now, let's say that you don't have $11,000 saved up for this sort of expense, an expense that hits your pocketbook at the same time that you're in tremendous grief and anxiety. What do you do? What do you do when the difference between burial and cremation can run thousands of dollars, thousands of dollars that you might not have? Well, at that point, the practical consideration of cost will tend to overshadow everything else. It's hard to stand on principle when you don't have the resources to do so and when you've just lost someone who meant the world to you. Pastorally, I get that. I get that these decisions have real-world implications that have to be thought through and addressed. And I think we need to err on the side of grace when talking with those whose life and circumstances may have been flipped over end, irrespective of what choice they've made in this regard. And for those who find themselves caught in this bind, the bind between conviction and cost, let me encourage you, research something. Research something called direct or immediate burials. There are alternatives out there that may help you with the expense. In any case, my, my own sense is that the practical considerations, as understandable as they are, do not give the Christian community a cause to set aside the testimony and the precedence of scripture. Pragmatism is not a substitute for scripture. Pragmatism is always going to be a moving target. It's how a society ends up with abortion or euthanasia. In general, elevating practical concerns over the witness of scripture is not the sign of a healthy church age, but of one that is slipping. And for cremation to have gone from 4% to 50% in a generation or so, in spite of the church's historic opposition to it and lack of biblical support, is not a sign of our corporate maturity, but it's a bellwether of the sort of slippage we're seeing everywhere we look. Everywhere we look, biblical precepts have given way to pragmatism. You don't have to be a prophet or a son of a prophet to realize that that trajectory ends badly. If the Christian church wants to avoid slouching towards Gomorrah, we need to take all thoughts, all actions, all choices, and bring them captive to God's Word. Chapter 4 Conclusion Earlier in today's broadcast, we mentioned the death of Moses back in Deuteronomy chapter 24. Specifically, we said that Moses had passed into glory after meeting with God and looking out into the promised land. And at that time, the only one who was with him when he died was God. Now, at that point, God could have done any manner of things with Moses' body. But what he chose to do was to bury him at an unmarked grave so that no one could ever find him and make relics or idols out of his bones. And if you think about it, if God's primary concern was that Moses' body not be found, then cremating or burning Moses' body would have been the the quickest, most appropriate approach. Because you can't make an idol out of that which you cannot find. And yet, God still chose to bury him. Now, is God's action in Deuteronomy 24 prescriptive for the rest of us? Is it precedent-setting just because God chose to bury Moses? Well, on its own, maybe, maybe not. But when read in combination with the rest of Scripture's witness, I think we can draw this conclusion. The burial of the deceased is the repeated pattern, not only of God's people, but as demonstrated by God himself. Broadly speaking, Christians do well when we reflect God's choices in our own lives, not when we depart from them. Now, in closing, if you have a loved one who has been cremated or desires to be cremated, then you should know that cremation is not a barrier to our future resurrection in any way, shape, or form. In time, all of God's children will be gathered around his throne, irrespective of the disposition of their bodies while on earth. And so that's good news for those who tuned in today fearful about this topic or its implications. Cremation does not separate us from God's hand or from is grace. However, if you believe that the Bible is our rule of faith in this matter, as with all matters, then I would encourage you, let its pages inform and direct your related thinking and decisions. Mail Call Today's listener question comes from Sean and deals with the subject of tattoos and piercings. Sean wants to know this. Are tattoos acceptable for Christians? Why or why not? All right, Sean, thank you for the question. Are tattoos biblical? Or more to the point, is it a sin to get a tattoo? Since over 20% of Americans have one, this is a question that a lot of people have asked. Unfortunately, there are not a lot of verses that speak to this point, but there is one. In Leviticus 19.28, we read this. You shall not make any cuttings in your flesh for the dead, nor tattoo any marks upon you. I am the Lord. Alright, so what is the context of this passage in Leviticus 19? Well, in this chapter, God is giving a series of moral and ceremonial laws for his people to follow. In this chapter, he tells his people not to lie, not to cheat, steal, and so forth. He also gives his people directions on what to wear and what to eat. Now, at face value, it would seem that Leviticus 19 is forbidding tattoos, and for many, that verse alone seals the deal. But others will say that the instruction on tattoos occurs within the context of a number of ceremonial laws that have since been abrogated or done away with under the New Covenant. Furthermore, this verse occurs in a block of text in which God was trying to keep his people from emulating or adopting a series of Canaanite practices. With all that context in mind, some would say that tattoos may have been unacceptable at one point in the past, much like eating shellfish, but are now... Okay, so which view is correct? Are tattoos permanently forbidden, or is this a matter of Christian liberty? Well, it may be helpful to remember that all of God's laws, even those ceremonial laws that are now abrogated under the new covenant, spoke to principles that have not necessarily gone away. In the time that Leviticus was written, the pagan nations were quick to abuse or to modify their bodies. Scars, marks, various implements were used to degrade God's image in them. It's unlikely that God is a bigger fan of that sort of thing now than he was then. In other words, the principle of his original instruction has probably not changed with the passage of time. Furthermore, we can note that tattoos in our day are frequently used as a source of identification with an entity, a brand, a team, or an individual outside of oneself. Putting a mark of identification on something that 1 Corinthians 6 refers to as a temple of God, it's a hugely questionable proposition. Think about it. In the first century, King Herod tried that. In the first century, King Herod tried to put a huge Roman eagle on the gate to the Jewish temple, and the Jews rebelled. In their view, God's temple was not to be identified by some stamp or icon or identification with Rome or anything else. For now, let me close by asking this. Is there a way that getting a tattoo will make the recipient more Christ-like? Because at the end of the day, isn't that our objective? And if it is, then we should make these sorts of decisions accordingly. Thank you for joining us for today's study. To check out other sermons or teachings by Dr. Holt, please visit our website at r316.org.